We are in part two of a series on backsliding, and uh, the passage to which I'd like you to turn is the last verse of Second Peter chapter 3, but we'll read from verse 14 just to get the section on final words, but especially verse 18. Tonight is our consideration. Last uh, Lord's Day, we did an overview of the fact of backsliding in both the Old and New Testaments, and today our focus shifts a little bit. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent and be found, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but... Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Well, let us ask for God to bless our reading of His Word. Our Father in heaven, we thank You for Your Word. We ask that it will be to us like fresh water, nourishing us and sustaining us and giving us life and that it would become a spring of living water in our souls as it is accompanied with power from on high. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. I'm sure most of you have uh, witnessed uh, somebody who has been tragically uh, paralyzed, and perhaps this happens in a movie, but I'm reliably informed this has happened in real life where uh, they are told that they will never walk again and then miraculously they begin to develop movement in their body slowly but surely and it is called a sort of medical miracle that doctors don't understand. Well, usually when this happens, they don't just wake up and start to uh, walk around after maybe months, even years of uh, total uh, inability to, to move their legs. It is a slow process, and the slow process requires a work every single day. It requires a lot of physiotherapy. It requires a lot of uh, mental strength. It requires uh, being able to deal with setbacks when uh, things don't go as quickly as you wish. Uh, This happened to one of my high school classmates, a tragic accident in hospital for months, and the process of being able to get back to movement was was brutal. But eventually, after a lot of care, a lot of work, he was able to move again. And eventually, some people even begin to be able to jog and run, albeit they uh, clearly have a type of limp because they never fully recover. Well, the Christian life uh, is sort of like that. We 
have been miraculously given movement from above. But when we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Savior, we don't run freely. We don't uh, wake up every day and think this is easy and we go from the clouds to the another clouds and singing, oh, what a beautiful morning. I feel as though I'm spiritually on fire for the Lord and every thought and every word and every action is directed to its proper end and prayer is easy, loving people who are unlovable is easy and so on. Christian living really isn't like that. Christian living is, in fact, very much like a recovery of sorts. It requires uh, a lot of help. It requires uh, some setbacks, in fact, to move forward. And our sanctification uh, to us may seem like it is progressing, but as others watch on and you see the person moving, you think, wow, they've got a long way to go. Have you ever noticed that the person who is actually in the midst is going, wow, I can't believe this, you know, because they know what it felt like to be totally inactive. And so as they move even a little, they think, wow, this is amazing. Whereas others look and go, okay, I don't know if they're ever going to move properly. And then when they start to move, people watch them jog with a funny limp. And that is very much how it is when people watch us live our Christian lives. We have a funny limp that very often we don't even know about in the way that we move, in the way that we act. Our peculiarities that make us who we are, uh, some of our vices, some of the things that we really struggle with are very obvious to others, but not always obvious to ourselves. In other words, it is uh, a little bit of a frustrating matter as we go forward. Now, what Peter is suggesting to Christians, as you will see here, is that there are a number of things that can thwart Christian growth. One of those things, and I won't go into too much detail tonight, but he does write his letter in the context of false teachers. And then he speaks towards the end of Paul. And actually, isn't it interesting that he says they uh, twist to their own destruction Paul's writings as they do other scriptures, which is to say that Peter is recognizing that what Paul is writing is scripture, which uh, for those of you who wonder about the forming of the canon, uh, the apostles are certainly under the impression that what they were writing was scripture, and that's how Peter views Paul. But then notice that interesting verse there. You therefore, verse 17, beloved, knowing this before, and take care that you are not carried away. In other words, that you don't fall back with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Take care that you don't backslide, is what he's saying. But, verse 18, what should you be doing? Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There's the positive side of Christianity. Grow. Do not lose stability. Do not get carried away. Do not slip back. Do not fall back. And so the first point about Christian growth is that it is something that is possible. Notice he wouldn't say this if it were not possible. Grow in the grace and the knowledge 
of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There are a number of other places in the scriptures where this growth idea is obviously present in Hebrews chapter 12, where we read of the great cloud of witnesses that is before us. We lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we run that race? Looking to Jesus. Peter says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Savior. The author of Hebrews is saying, look to Jesus. It's the same thing. The founder and perfecter of our faith. In other words, you are going to grow in your Christian faith as you look to Jesus because the faith that you've been given is from Him. Who, for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, there you have growth. A race that is set before you, look to Jesus. Peter says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Savior. And then Paul will say, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, that we are to cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So sanctification has two parts. These words are not scary words. They're scary when you actually have to implement them, but they're not scary words in and of themselves. The two parts are this, mortification and vivification. Mortification is, as a Christian, you put to death your sinful nature. If by the Spirit, Paul says in Romans 8.13, you put to death the misdeeds of the flesh, you will live. You put to death. That is what Christians do. They kill their sin. But there's also vivification. And vivification is the putting on. It's the growing. It's the positive side. It's the holiness that is brought to completion It is the growing in Christ-likeness. And so Christianity is twofold in terms of the Christian life. Putting off, putting on. Putting to death, being clothed in Christ. And that is what Peter is saying. It is what Paul is saying. It's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Now Thomas Goodwin has this memorable phrase, I think, and he calls us empty creatures by nature. We are empty creatures. And so when Jesus says He comes to give us life in John 10, the life that He promises is abundant life. And the life of grace, says Thomas Goodwin, and these main properties of life are to move and grow. So the life that He gives us is to move and to grow. Grace is an active thing. And it is a growing thing also. And because the more it is acted, the more it grows. Therefore, its growth is expressed by motion. Forward motion. That is how you get stronger. You work a muscle. When I was at university, I was at training camp as a freshman. This is in the United States. Everything is high-tech. This was a, a very high-end program, and it was so intense that one day my body hurt so much, I faked being sick, and I stayed at the dorm and told my roommates to just tell the coaches I was sick because I needed a day off because I could barely move. I wasn't really sick, but 
I faked being sick. There, I admit it. But I was in a lot of pain. <laughs> and the coaches came looking for me at the dorm because you don't get to just say you're sick. And I wasn't at the dorm for long. In fact, they took me to the hospital. And they gave me an intern doctor who was learning the ropes, who spent hours asking me every medical question there was. That was my punishment. He asked if I was smoking weed. He asked if I was doing this. And I was sitting there going, Mark, this is more painful than if you had actually gone to training. But it actually got worse. Later in the season, I faked an injury. I hadn't become a Christian yet, but these fakings led to my con conversion, I believe. And as I faked a hamstring injury, the next minute, I had to go and I thought, well, now, now I'll get some time off. Don't fake an illness, fake an injury, Mark. No, what happens is I worked harder with my hamstring injury with the therapist than I ever was working at practice. I was sprinting every day. I was going to the pool and putting weights on and sprinting in the pool. And I thought again to myself, Mark, this isn't working out for you, this lying. But the point was that the way to actually get over my hamstring injury was to work the muscle, not be inactive. The way to deal with a lot of injuries actually is to work the muscle. And the more you work a muscle, the stronger it gets. Grace in the Christian life is meant to be worked. It's meant to be like coming to an injured person and you receive the grace of God. And now what are you going to do with that grace? Are you going to just sit idly by and expect that grace to just magically work? Or is that grace going to work in the way that God wants it to work? So, this growth, it comes from God. In fact, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 19, that we who are united to Christ are to hold fast to Christ because it is from Him we are nourished. And then Paul says, with a growth that is from God. The growth is from God. But Octavius Winslow has this remarkable book on personal declension in the soul. And he said, we sometimes deify these virtues. In other words, the virtues that we receive from God of faith, of hope, of love, we forget that though they are undoubtedly divine in their origin, faith is a gift of God. Love is a fruit of the Spirit. And though they are spiritual in their nature, and though they are sanctifying in their effects, yet they are not sustained by a self-supporting power. You don't just get them and they just work magically. Actually, but by constant communications of life and nourishment from Jesus, that the moment of their being left to their inherent strength is the moment of their certain declension and decay. Once you think that faith and love and the graces you receive from God will just simply work, they will actually begin to decay in your life. Those gifts are meant to be worked out. That is why Paul will say in Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We bring holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. For it is God who works in you to work and to will according to His good pleasure. So, the first point tonight, you are 
to work out your salvation. And your salvation is one of progression. Your salvation is one of not only putting to death your sinful nature, but growing in holiness. Now, how does this happen? Second point. The author of Hebrews says we are to look to Jesus. And a lot of times we say these words, we're to look to Christ. But what does that actually mean when you look to Christ? Do you look to Christ for some things like forgiveness of sins and then you look to other things for growth in holiness? How does it work? And the answer is always, in every question, you must fix your eyes upon Jesus for whatever the theological matter may be. Now, how did Christ himself progress? Or should we ask ourselves first this question, did Christ himself progress? And the answer we are given in Luke chapter 2 is that, yes, indeed, he grew in wisdom and in favor with God and man. He grew in stature. Not just with man. It wasn't just that man came to this realization that he was a godly person that they were looking on. Jesus himself went from one degree of knowledge to another. He grew in his sanctification, not putting off sinful nature. He didn't have that. But over time, he learned to suffer with patience. Now, how do we know that? Well, not only does Luke say he grew in wisdom and in knowledge, but we are told that there are three principal ways in which Christ grew in holiness. The first is this, through God's word. So, when Jesus, living by faith in the wilderness, being tempted, how did he deal with the assaults of the devil? He quoted God's word. Why was he able to quote God's word? Because he knew God's word. And why did he know God's word? Well, if you go back to the Old Testament, one of the things that kings had to do when they entered into kingship, so to speak, over Israel is they had to do what? They had to copy out all the words of the law. And I believe that Jesus, in order to be a faithful king, not only would have copied out in a manner of speaking, all the words of the law, he would have memorized all of the words of the law. I believe he had the whole Old Testament memorized. And so he was instructed. But as I've brought reference to many times in Isaiah chapter 50, we are told explicitly that Jesus will say, the Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. He was taught by his Father. He learned God's word. And so in John's gospel, we are told that in a number of places, Jesus will say, my teaching is not my own, but it is from my Father. Or I only speak the words the Father has given to me. He was taught what to say and how to say it. And so how did Jesus grow in holiness? He knew God's word. He believed God's word. And so the question that he has to ask religious people most often 
in his ministry, as you have heard on a previous occasion, is, have you not read? Have you not read? The problem you have is that you are ignorant. You do not know. And in Luke chapter 24, he's walking on the road to Emmaus. And what does he castigate his disciples for? Ignorance. Did you not know? So when Jesus is saying, have you not read, have you not read, have you not read, and then after his resurrection says, did you not know it was written in the law and the prophets, what is he saying? He's saying that every child of God has an obligation to know God's word. So how do you grow in holiness? You must know God's Word. There are no shortcuts in holiness. I wish there were. If anyone could find a shortcut, it was me. In fact, I think Bill Gates, I'm not a huge fan of him myself, but I will say this. He did say something about how he always likes to hire a lazy person every now and then to do a job because that lazy person will figure out a quicker way to do the job. That's quite insightful. My brother and I are very different, and my dad had the great privilege of raising two uh, fabulous young men, if I may say so, and we worked for his roofing company, and we would both be given the same job, but 11 years apart, and my dad now tells these stories. He says, if I told Mark to do a job a certain way, I would come back, and he will have done the job a different way. And I would say, yes, yes, and then I would figure out how can I get this job done more quickly. And I would sometimes succeed with alarming success, and sometimes I would make a real hash of it and make more work for myself. But my brother was told, do a job, he would do exactly what my dad said in just the way my dad said it and everything. Now, that has pros and cons, by the way. But the point is, is that when it comes to Christian living and growth in grace, there are no shortcuts. There are no easy ways to all of a sudden become fully conformed to Jesus Christ. It is, in many respects, a slow, ordinary slog. It is walking day by day in the Word of God and letting it do its work. Secondly, What else do we learn from Isaiah? We learn that Jesus not only knew God's word and received God's word, that Jesus was a man who lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. So right at the beginning of Isaiah in chapter 11, we're already told, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Jesus was heard because of his fear. With loud cries and tears in the days of his flesh, he offered up supplications to the one who was able to save him, and he was heard because of his reverence, his fear. It's the same Greek word. He was heard because he feared God. And why did he fear God? Because he had a spirit of fear upon him. The Holy Spirit, the spirit of knowledge, the spirit of fear. So in Isaiah chapter 42, we are told, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put what? My spirit upon him. He was a man of the spirit. In chapter 61, 
The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of prison to those who are bound. In other words, which was quoted in Luke chapter 4, Jesus was holy because the Holy Spirit rested upon him. So, what does this mean for us? It means that, A, if you're going to be one who progresses in Christian living, you are going to need to own the Word of God, to know the Word of God, to believe the Word of God, but then you're going to have to receive the Word of God in the Spirit. You're going to have to ask God for the Spirit. Now, here is something that has really been brought home to me in terms of my own prayers lately, and I hope it will be of some use to you. I used to just think I could ask for the Spirit and then God would magically just give me the Spirit and I would become more holy. But what I've come to realize in Christian living is when I ask God for the Spirit, I have to be prepared to receive the Spirit in the way that God wants the Spirit to work in my life. So if God is going to give me the Holy Spirit, what is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit? Patience, for example. If I ask for the Holy Spirit and say, Oh Lord, fill me with your Spirit, which so many Christians do. They just want God to give them their Spirit and think, Well, won't that be nice? The problem is, when you ask God for the Holy Spirit, you better be sure you know what you're asking for. Because if one of the fruit of the Spirit is patience, He's going to put you in a scenario where you're going to have to exercise patience. You want the Spirit? You want the truth? (laughs) You don't want me to finish that, do you? But it may actually be a question you need to ask yourself. Do you want the Holy Spirit? Do you want to have to show love to somebody who's unlovable? We are not mystics who just get to say, fill me with the Spirit and I'm going to float around and think life is so easy. No, the Spirit comes to us to do what? Make us like Christ. And if by nature we are utterly unlike Christ, do you not think that receiving more of the Spirit is actually going to be, in some respects, a fairly painful endeavor? I want the Spirit of patience. I want the Spirit of love. I want the Spirit of joy. So if I receive the Spirit of joy, do you think God's going to say, well, Mark, and also here, you've won the lottery. Now let's see if you can help the Spirit to rejoice in the fact that you're now rich. It doesn't work like that. You want to be joyful? God is going to put you in a scenario where it's going to be difficult to be joyful, but you're going to need to rely upon the Spirit to be joyful in a situation that most people in the world would think, that's crazy. Who for the what? Joy set before Him endured the cross. Jesus receives the Spirit and God gives Him a cross. Jesus receives the Spirit and God gives Him disciples who don't understand you see what I'm trying to say about Christian living? When you ask for the Spirit, and I pray that you do ask for the Spirit, you have to understand that you're asking for how the Spirit is meant to work in your life. There was one final point, but I'm going to leave it there, and I'll come back to it in future about Christ's own growth. Just by way of application as we conclude. What does it mean then to not backslide? 
If you are not going to backslide, what are you going to do? You are going to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Our hope is in the promise of God who unveils our face, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We all with unveiled faces behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so what? We are transformed from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Everything you need to know really about Christian growth is right there. Second Corinthians chapter 3. You are being transformed from one degree of glory to another as you with unveiled faces behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You look to Christ And the Spirit of Christ comes upon you and you are changed from one degree of glory to another. So to the degree that you are beholding the Lord will be the degree to which you are transformed into His image. That is why if a sermon and a worship service is not exalting the glories of God in the face of Jesus Christ, you're not going to be sanctified. You're wasting your time. You're going to be lifeless and dead. So what do you need? You need to be confronted with Christ in the sermon. You need to be confronted with Christ in the sacraments. You need to be confronted with Christ in the hymns. Otherwise, you're not going to grow. It's impossible to grow in a way that God has not ordained for you to grow. And the way that He's ordained for you to grow is by beholding His glories in the face of of his son. I'll just say by way of conclusion of that point that our sanctification is usually very hard for us to fully grasp ourselves. And one of the great delights of learning theology is that you get to understand some pretty precious truths at times about God's word. And this may be a comfort to you you may not be able to perceive your growth in Christ's likeness, but actually, because God has promised that as the end goal of your salvation, you can be sure that it is actually happening, though you don't always perceive it in the way that you would like to. And a lot of times, it actually will be more perceived by others than yourself. I kind of think of my own sanctification like when I once went to a doctor and I was, uh, thought I had like something, some skin cancer on my face being the hypochondriac that I am. And he says, all right, let's have a look. And the light that he put on my face that I saw in the mirror, I thought, Mark, you are the most hideous human being in the world. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Well, I mean, not yourselves, but what light does. <laughs> And you know those blinding lights that reveal every single blemish? When we are sanctified, we start to actually, in a certain sense, become like Christ. But the closer we get to Him, the more we start to see our own blemishes and the horror we get from those. And that's the mystery of sanctification, is the closer you get to the illumination and the glory of the light of the gospel in the face of Christ, the more you start to see how evil your own sinful nature is and how, in some respects, how awful you are. And yet, 
You're growing in grace. And that's the mystery of sanctification. So trust in the Lord's work in you so that He honors His Son by making you like His Son and B, understand that what may be imperceptible to you will likely be more perceptible to others. One of the lovely things about being a pastor is looking at some of you now compared to what you used to be. And then also occasionally getting a compliment from you about what I used to be. And here we are together, more like Christ because it has been His work in us. And you just go, wow, I remember what Keith was like. Man, he's improved. I remember the first time I met Scott. I book, tried to buy a book off of him. I didn't even know him. Sold me a book. Our same house he's in. I, then I says, oh, what about that? He's like, I'm not selling my Turretin. He's much holier now. If I asked for the Turretin, he'd give it to me. <laughs> but I could go through most of you and say, you're actually a lot farther along than you think. And that is because Christ will do His work in you. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank You for Your promise, which we have to trust is true because at times we don't believe that we are very much like Your Son. We see our own imperfections, our own shortcomings, and we sometimes even shriek in horror at what is remaining in our souls. And yet... The mystery of sanctification is as we draw closer to God through Christ by the Spirit, those abominations in our heart do become more real to us and we are more sensitive. And that is a sign of our Christ-likeness. And so we thank you for that and pray that as we repent and as we live in the name of Christ, we will one day receive the promise of being made like Him in every way. Amen.